Psalm 139. Let's see what the Lord has for us. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before You lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there Your hand will lead me, and Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, And the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139. We, we have seen many psalms of distinction along the way. Psalm 2, the installation of the king, a remarkable psalm at the beginning of the book. Psalm 8, the exaltation of man. Psalm 22, we saw the good shepherd. Psalm 23, the great shepherd. Psalm 24, the chief shepherd. Psalms of distinction. Psalm 51, the sinner's psalm. Psalm 103, the psalm of grace. That just, unlike any other, spoke and speaks the grace of God for people. We looked at Psalm 110, ironically, right around Christmas time. That is the psalm of the great king. For this reason, Jesus says, I have come. And it is to be king. Psalm 119, just a couple of weeks back, the psalm of the word. Where David, we believe, just pours out his love for the word of God and the magnificence and glory of God's word. Psalm 137, last Sunday, the psalm of the exile. There in Babylon, and his heart's cried to be where the Lord is. But none of these psalms are as profoundly personal as Psalm 139. The most personal, in my opinion, of all the psalms. And Psalm 139 bears the signature of David. You see there at the top that it's for the choir director, a psalm of David. And I think it reveals better than any other passage of Scripture... David as a man after God's own heart. 
You really, truly, if you could hear the heartbeat of God and hear the heartbeat of, of David, in this psalm, they align. David's heart beating right along with the Father's. The man after God's own heart invites God into his heart and not in some trite religious way. Now this is not one of those kind of legalistic prayers that, that you go through by rote thinking that this will you know, take care of the business of the day. This is not business. This is incredibly personal. What David does in this psalm is he invites God into a full and invasive search of his heart. Search me. He says there in verse 23, Know me, try me. At the beginning of the psalm, you have searched me and known me. I was thinking about this, and wow, what application in our culture today. Do you like to be searched? Three letters for you. (laughs) T-S-A. Who among us wants that kind of invasive search? I just can't wait to get to the airport. Because I've got two choices, full body scan or pat down. Which are you going to choose when you have to fly next? Have them scan. You know the full body scan is so precise they can detect beads of sweat on your body under the clothes. Oh yeah, I want that picture of me floating around. But the alternative, the pat down, unbelievable. We live in a paranoid age. I understand with terrorism and I understand the, the threats out there and yet at the same time we go so politically overboard it's, it's not even funny it's, it's George Orwell's 1984 just a few years late it just feels like we're there it upsets so many because we have a tendency as, as human beings to be somewhat private we cling to our rights along with our guns and religion we um, elevate privacy confidentiality discretion and you might say well what about the openness of the social networking you know Facebook and Twitter no offense to you Facebookers and tweeters but that's superficial and it's absolutely super- in fact I was on Facebook last night ironically and I typed in uh, I, I said you know Facebook is it's like returning to show and tell in kindergarten that's Facebook it's show and tell no wonder people love it that was one of my favorite things in kindergarten you know you'd bring the the doll or the or the the cookie that you had for your lunch or the quarter that you found on the ground on the way to school and that was your it was your moment to shine you know superficial Uh, you know tweeting thoughts about a can of soup that you just made who cares Facebooking your recent adventures in Farmville. Glad to know you're enjoying reality so much. But when it comes to deep personal stuff, we tend, all of us, to be guarded. Especially the older you get, because you realize that as you reveal personal things with other people, you can get burned for it. So you start to look for those you can trust. You look for those that if you share the depths of your soul, if you reveal even some of the dark secrets in your life, you're looking for the people who can keep those, who can walk with you, and who will love you in spite of what you're opening up, in spite of what you are showing. I ask you this morning to think about who is it that you really trust inside and out? Who do you know trust you so much that you can talk about anything, share anything with you, with them? 
Psalm 139 is deeply personal because David reveals for him more than anybody else, it's the Lord. It's the Lord that He says, search me, know me. I I want you to know everything about me. I'm asking you to invade. I'm asking you to come in. What David recognizes here is an an avoided but relentless truth that God takes this personally. God takes you personally. Not religiously, not distantly. God is intimately aware of and involved in our lives in ways beyond what we can even fathom. Even the most avid lover of God in our world is unaware many times of how intimately and intricately involved God is in our lives. And we start to see it. It emerges in this psalm almost in an unsettling way. He is involved far more than most people are willing to acknowledge or admit. For God, this is not business as usual. It is absolutely personal. Now, Psalm 139, for our study this morning, it divides thematically into three parts, which we're going to outline as follows. Three parts. The first 12 verses. His omniscience. His omniscience. I'll tell you ahead, just in case you don't know, omniscience just means all-knowing. Okay, So we begin with his omniscience, the first 12 verses. Then verses 13 through 18, my origin. My origin. His omniscience, my origin. And then finally we'll conclude this psalm, verses 19 through 24, with our opposition. His omniscience. God is the searcher of the heart. Our all-knowing God is the searcher of our hearts. Gang, it's not just that God knows it all, it's that He wants to know it all. By His own self-disclosure, God is a seeker of the human heart. He's expressed this about Himself, that He is the searcher of hearts. He is looking into hearts. He wants to know hearts. He doesn't want a tweeter level. He wants a a, a deep personal level to know you inside and out. I've I've said before, you know, the hype of the church in the 90s was the seeker-sensitive church. Perhaps you're familiar with that buzz that went around for a while, still with some. And and I've said this before, the true seeker-sensitive church is sensitive first to the seeking of God. Because He's the seeker. And we're more concerned about, if we really want to be seeker-sensitive, we're more concerned about what He wants than about catering to what human beings want. And ironically, the more concerned we are about what He wants, the more open we are to draw people in. The more real this place is, as opposed to some trumped-up place to try and get someone in the door by some bait-and-switch tactics. God is the seeker. Psalm 44, verse 20 says, If we have forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For He knows the secrets of the heart. Jeremiah 17.10 The Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Hebrews 4.13 This one will rattle your cage. There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You can't get away from it. People can deny God their whole lives, but you know what? Ultimately, we will all have to have something to do with Him. We all will have to be in that place before Him, whether trying to explain ourselves or embraced by Him 
We all have to do with Him. Revelation 2.23, he says, Jesus says, I am He who searches the hearts and the minds. And even now, this morning, as we're studying His Word and, and we're worshiping, you know what His Spirit is doing? Searching. Where's your heart this morning? Are you with me? Are there things in here that need to be cleaned out? Are there... Are there things in here that need to be brought to the surface? Are there gifts perhaps that you're unaware of? His Spirit is doing that right now as we're in His Word. He is the searcher of the heart and there is no avoiding it. Our omniscient God is a searcher. The question is, do you want, will you invite the invasive, persistent, relentless search of God into your heart? Are you open to Jesus' search and seizure? Will you allow Him to take hold? People act like, if not believe, God doesn't really know us. You know that ah, He's not really truly aware of what's going on in my life. I see Him aware in this holy person's life or this righteous person's life or that churchgoer. I, I see, you know, obviously they have a relationship with God. He's not aware of me. Not so. There's not a human being on the face of the earth that He is not intimately acquainted with whether they know it or not. He is fully aware Now, you need to understand some things in the background of this psalm to get where David's heart was at the time. David knew that God is a searcher. He knew that full well. He had seen it expressed many times in his life. When did David write this psalm? Now, this is important to the context. The context is important to understanding. Most conservative Bible scholars, and I would agree with them, believe that David wrote this psalm in response to the Lord's refusal to allow David to build him a temple. David wanted to badly. Perhaps you remember the story, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David desired to build a temple for the Lord. He's sitting around in his cedar palace, and it's beautiful, and it's well well appointed. And and as he sits around looking, he thinks, you know, it's time. We need to build a house for the Lord. He's he's got a tabernacle up there on Mount Moriah. He's got a tent up there that that we pitched, and we need to go up there, and, and, and we need to build something. And it's in his heart and he's thinking about it. And apparently he talked to his good friend, the prophet Nathan, about it. And Nathan said, oh, David, your heart's after God. Go for it. That night, Nathan goes home and Nathan gets a word from the Lord. You go back and tell David he is not to build me a temple. Oh, okay, sorry, Lord. The prophet got a little ahead of his God. (laughs) So Nathan goes back to David and says, David, I I have to tell you this. God put the kibosh on your desire to build him a house. You can't do it. You see, and we learn this later in 2 Chronicles, that the Lord made it clear, David, you've got blood on your hands. You've been a warrior king, great king, but you've got bloody hands, and bloody hands cannot build my temple. Only a man of peace, Solomon, whose name means peace, would build the temple. And so David, David listens to this, but but what's amazing, and I, I love this about the Lord, there's always a yet. He says, you can't build me a house, yet... I'm going to build you one. What? Oh, not not like what you've got built down there in the city of David. No, I'm going to build you an eternal house. I'm going to take of your seed, David, and I'm going to put him on the throne forever. I'm building you an eternal house. Of course, the Lord was speaking about Jesus and the eternal kingdom that would come literally through the line of David. And David is blown away. 2 Samuel 7.18, here's David's response. The king went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? David hears 
You can't build me a house, but I'm going to build you one. And David is stunned. Why me? Who am I? You brought me out of the hills of Bethlehem as a shepherd and, and to this place, and now you're, you're still going. You're going to do more, Lord. And it all came about because the Lord searched David's heart and knew that David's heart, knew his life, knew his hands were bloody, knew there was sin in his life, that he was imperfect. Yet, through David, God was about to build the eternal kingdom that would be fully expressed, will be fully expressed when Jesus returns. And that's the context here. That's the background. And so David sits down and he writes, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. And you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, oh Lord, you know it all. The good and the bad in me, the beautiful and the ugly in me, Everything within me. God, you know it all. It's that personal. It's that personal. God knows your ups and your downs. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows your ups and your downs. He knows your thoughts. He clears your path. God is simply not superficial. He doesn't play on that skimming across the surface level that so many of us like to safely play. No, God goes deep. The Hebrew verbs here, know, understand, Scrutinize and acquainted in verses 2-3. Those four Hebrew words are all written in the perfect mood tense. What does that mean? It means that they are ever-present actions on the part of the Lord. You are knowing me. You are understanding me. You are scrutinizing me. You are acquainted constantly. This is an ongoing, immediate process with the Lord. That this is happening even now. And I find it interesting in verse 3, this word scrutinize. In the Hebrew, the word zarah literally means winnow. In other words, you winnow my path. Well, we don't use the word winnow a lot in our language. It simply means to separate out. As in the separation of wheat from chaff. It would be on the threshing floor using what's called a winnowing fork. To winnow. To separate good from bad. And the the picture in the Bible is separating righteous from evil or from wicked. This separating process. You separate my path. John the Baptist said this of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he'll gather the wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Winnowing, separating. You winnow my path, Lord. Now get that picture in your mind. You're walking along the path and there's all kinds of choices before you and Jesus is winnowing. The Lord is going before and He's separating out the good from the bad before you. Isaiah 26 verse 7 says, The way of the righteous is smooth. You, most upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. God is making a way. And He makes clear. And don't you notice this? Those of you who have followed Jesus for a long time in your life, don't you notice that more and more discernment becomes uh, evident that that you, you know better and better what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad? Things that you might not even have really thought about in the past 
as you walk with Jesus become even more clear. And as a function of that, you realize you need grace more than ever. I've shared this recently, that being with Jesus a long time doesn't mean that you need less faith, it means that you need more. And it doesn't mean that you're good to go and you don't really need grace anymore. No, the longer you're with Jesus, the more you recognize how badly you need His grace. The more dependent on His grace and forgiveness you become. Because you see clearly the righteous and the wicked, the good, the bad. He's winnowing the path before you. Verse 5, You have enclosed behind me, you have enclosed me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. This is more than saying God has all knowledge. This is David saying, I can't fathom that kind of omniscience with that kind of love. Now, think about that. All-knowing and all-loving. You'd think that would be a contradiction in terms. Wouldn't you? That to be all-knowing, it would be impossible for God to be all-loving. Because to be all-knowing means He knows everything there is to know about us. And at some point, He would find out something that was not good that He didn't want around. So to be all-knowing and all-loving is a contradiction in terms as far as we are concerned, not with Him. God knows it all, and He loves us all. That's remarkable. That's what David means when he says, I can't even grasp this. This thought is is too lofty for me. This is way over my head, God, that you can know every aspect of my life and still love me? I don't get it. And speaking of that love, He has enclosed me behind and before. He has laid His hand upon me. And gang, that is a statement of absolute security. We're not talking about a suffocating presence. I'm enclosed. I can't get away from God. That's not it. You know, we're not talking about heavy-handed supervision. You know, when I lay my hands on my kids, it's a little different thing. <laughs> not always. I've, I know I've shared this story, but it's, it's just one of my favorites, one of the most heartwarming in, in my life as a dad. I remember Corey as a little boy over, wow, over 17 years ago. He's 20 now. And I was a youth pastor and in and out quite a bit. And he told Cheryl one, one evening, she's tucking him into bed, and I was off at a youth event, and, and he said, be sure Daddy comes in when he comes home. And Cheryl said, well, honey, you're going to be asleep before, before Daddy comes in. And he goes, that's okay, I'll know he came in. And Cheryl said, well, how, how will you know if you're asleep? He says, I'll feel his big warm hand on my head. And I'll tell you, there was a night after I heard that that I didn't go in and put my big, warm hand on his head. That's what we're talking about. You have laid your hand on me. His his big, warm hand. It is a hand of love and compassion and care. Deuteronomy 33.27 says, The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 1 Chronicles 4, verse 10. You remember... Jabez, Yabetz in the Hebrew, the prayer of Jabez, that famous prayer. He prayed to the Lord saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my border and that your right hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm that it may not pain me. And God granted him what he requested. It's not the heavy hand of discipline and death. It is the hand of guidance. It is the right hand of blessing. It's the hand of life that the Lord places on his people. 
searching the heart, knowing even the bad stuff, and yet He says, but I want to put my hand on you. I want to lay my hand upon you and walk you through this. I want to be with you. I truly do. Yes, I know everything, but I also love everything there is about you. And so I put my hand on you. I love the scene in in the opening pages of Revelation where John sees Jesus. Now remember, Jesus was John's best friend. They were the closest there as Jesus walked the earth. But when Jesus comes back in that glorified state, He blows John away. And John, the Bible tells us, fell down like a dead man. And the implication there is perhaps John's heart stopped. When he saw Jesus in all His glory, He just hit the ground. Flatlined. And the Bible tells us that uh, John says, He placed His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. How many times in the three years that they walked together did Jesus place His hand on John's shoulder to explain something to him, to share a joke, to pray together? How many times? And yet this time, John is flat out on the ground and Jesus lays His hand on him and says, Hey, remember? It's still me. Don't be afraid. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, and having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You see, He laid His hands upon us, but His hands, by the time He lays His hands on us, are nail-scarred hands. How is it possible that God could be all-knowing and all-loving? All you got to do is look at His hands. And you see. Because God, knowing every sin we would ever commit, and knowing the ugliest part of each and every one of us, said, there's, there's a way that we can clean this up. There's a way we can make this better. And so Jesus went to the cross. His guiding, gentle, nail-scarred hands. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? These questions beg the answer nowhere. There's nowhere that you aren't there. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in death, to the Hebrew mind, in the netherworld, in that place where we go after we die, we don't know much about it. It's just that vague holding cell, that place that the dead go. If I go there, even there... You are with me. There's nowhere you go that God does not know. From heaven to Sheol, from the heights of heavenly praise to the depths of hellish sorrow, God is there. David says you're there with me. Whether David was sitting comfortably on the throne in Jerusalem or hiding out in a cave for his very life, God's there. If he's out on the hills with the sheep in Bethlehem, God is there. If he's running through the deserts in Philistine territory, God was there. And David knew that. He had experienced that. He looks back at all of this when God says, I'm going to build you a house. And he says, and you're still drawing me along. You're still walking with me. You are still here. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. And again, he he mentions the right hand here. Anytime you see the right hand in Scripture, it means blessing. Because the right hand is the hand of blessing. It is the hand that a father would lay on his son as he spoke inheritance, as he gave a blessing before he died. It's the hand that Jacob laid on his boys 
as He blessed each and every one of them in Genesis 49 and 50. The right hand of blessing. There your hand leads me. There your right hand will lay hold of me. How many times does David need to reference the Father's hand for us to get it? His hand is upon you. His big warm hand laying on your tiny little head even to rest. His hand is with you. That word laying hold of is interesting there. Your right hand will lay hold of me. Again, we read that and we might get the feeling like he's going to grab me. (laughs) He's going to lay hold of me. Just wait till your father gets home. He's going to lay into you and that's not it. The Hebrew word is achaz. And achaz means to grasp or to fasten. It has the implication of someone going over a cliff and you grab them at the last minute. You grab on. You hang on to them. You fasten yourself to them. And Jesus says in John chapter 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And a thousand years before Jesus came along, David got it. A thousand years before the hands of Christ would grab hold of any who would call upon His name to be saved. David understood. He's awestruck by the way God had taken hold of his life. In fact, listen to this. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, he speaks of the past. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And then God speaks of the present. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And then He speaks of the future. I'll make you a great name, David. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. He says in verse 11, The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish His kingdom. And that same divine hand that laid hold of David's past, present, and future can lay hold of you and lay hold of me. Same hand that guided David. Same God says, I want to lay my hand on you. I want to walk with you. But but Lord, you don't know me. Oh, yes, I do. I do know you. I have searched your heart. You think you're hiding something? I know it all. I still want you. I still want to walk with you. That is absolutely astounding. You know, there's not a person in here, there's not a person on the face of the planet whose past is so dark, God doesn't know. And he goes on, David writes... If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me become like night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Spurgeon said this, darkness and light in this agree. Great God, they're both alike to thee. Thine hand can pierce thy foes as soon through midnight shades as blazing noon. And if the night is as bright as day to him, how bright is the light in which God dwells? If he can look into your darkness and mine and it not bother him in the least, how wonderful, how bright his presence. God's omniscience. God is the searcher of the heart. He knows it all. There's nothing you can hide from him. He's fully aware, and yet he still loves. Second part of the psalm. My origin. 
my origin. For God is not only the searcher of my heart, God is my maker. For you formed me, verse 13, in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I I can't read this passage without thinking about my grandma Irene, who passed away back in 1999. And she used to always say, and it just cracked us up, she'd say, I remember all the way back when, when I was in the womb. I have that good a memory. Grandma, what are you talking about? I remember when the Lord said, hold still, Irene, while I put your eyes in. love that. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. You formed me. You wove me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This word fearfully is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew yareh. Yare, and it doesn't mean reverently or awesomely. It can. It can apply to reverence. I am reverently made or I'm awesomely made. But it also means dreadfully. I'm terribly made. In other words, while I am wonderfully created by God's own hands, I've also got some scary stuff going on in me. I mean, you know, what's your first reaction when you cut your finger and the blood starts pouring? Ooh, that's kind of gross. It's fearful. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There's bizarre stuff. I, I, talking to Steve Berenson after his knee surgery and, and him saying, well, it's just so weird to be walking around knowing I've got these mechanics inside of me. And that, that's kind of freaky. You know? And I keep wondering if a garage door opener would do something, you know. (laughs) Steve. I am wonderfully but fearfully made. There are things in me I don't understand that are going on physically and spiritually. Uh, Physically speaking, Psalm 103, verse 14, He Himself knows our frame and He's mindful that we are dust. I saw this this video. You know, sometimes you're flipping the channels and you get those weird weird channels like, I I don't know, they're showing uh, Japanese game shows or they're showing bizarre things that have happened, bizarre events. And there was one yesterday of an elephant that had lost control. And there, there was this shrine, this like Buddhist shrine, and all these people were there for worship, and this elephant just went nuts. Reminded me of when the horse came in the barn. But this elephant is walking around. Well, this woman had passed out and was on the ground, and, and it showed the elephant went in and started kicking her body around. She was okay. She survived. But it was really freaky to watch because she looked like a rag doll, just, just flopping, flying around. And I'm watching that just going, wow, we are so fragile. We are so frail. God knows that. He knows that we're dead. There is something fearful in these bodies of ours that are not as strong as sometimes we think. And He is fully aware of that, that there are things going on in me I know nothing about. I don't even want to know about. How often do you get an ache or a pain and you know you probably should call the doctor, but you don't want to. Because you don't want to know what fearful thing may be going on inside your body. But God knows. I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Spiritually, there are things going on inside of me that are fearful. Yare. Romans 7.24, Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? My sin. My thoughts. Things that, that are going on in here that 
man, I don't, I'm not going to tweet that. You know? I don't want people to know that. God knows me inside and out, my frame, my spirit, even my sin nature. And David is saying, God, my maker, knows everything about me he has since day one because he made me. He formed me. It was his hands knitting me together. And gang, according to Scripture, we are not the substance of chemical reactions. We are not the substance of biological spontaneity. I mean, let's understand, gang. David says, you formed, you wove. That's very specific in the Hebrew language. It was your hands who put me together, who knitted me together. You know what's marvelous about this? It means that every single child born to planet Earth was touched by the hand of God in the womb. Everyone. Which means... For, for any children, regardless of, did mom and dad want me? doesn't matter. God did. God did. Because He made you. I don't know how any thinking Christian can read these verses and question our origin. I just don't know. I don't get it. I don't get how you could question either our origin or our outcome when you realize the intimacy with which God has touched your life in a stunning and, I'll warn you, somewhat graphic description of both conception and gestation in the womb. Listen to how Job describes this. Job, the earliest biblical book written, the oldest book we have on record in the Bible, book of Job, and he said this long before science caught up. Job chapter 10, verse 10. Did you not pour me out like milk? And curdle me like cheese, and clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews. What an amazing, and colorful, and graphic description of the process of, of conception through gestation. It's, it's amazing to me. How did, did Joe put that all together? How does he know? Well, inspired. The Spirit was. Given some information early on? I mean, that's biology 101. Job 10, verses 10 and 11. And I would say to any biology students, take that into your class and say, let me just read something to you, and you you tell me, teacher, how accurate is this? It's spot on. From perhaps 4,000 years ago. (laughs) Something science has only fairly recently begun to observe. Now, some may say, all right, Pastor Rick, but it's poetry, man. Psalm 139 is poetry. Job is poetry. So it's, you're trying to make something literal and, and accurate out of something that should be just poetic and, and kind of flowing. I've got to ask this question. Why do people, especially Christians, so quickly discount God's hand in our formation? Why are, why are we so willing and so ready to say, no, no, I mean, God got the ball rolling, I'll give him that. But to say that he actually was knitting me in my mother's womb, come on. Like every, every child that's ever existed, you really think God had a hand in that? Come on. He started the ball off, I'll give him Adam and Eve. You know, After that, pretty much just let nature take its course. Nature. Mother nature. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. A storm comes. Mother nature's angry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some questions to consider. All biological processes understood. Some questions to consider. When does a person's spirit begin existing? When does the spirit start? 
Here's another one. When did the Lord start jotting down the days of your life? At what point? There in the womb? Did God say, okay, here's the plan. Here's a great path for this person to walk. Should they want to follow me? Here's where their life is going to go. At what point did that begin? The obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive medicine journal, April 2009, states the following. Evidence is imprecise, but the fetus is probably not capable of being aware before 16 weeks. Imprecise? Probably? You know, unless we can state with absolute certainty, unless we can pinpoint the beginning of a person, shouldn't we assume that perhaps that is the stuff of God and not something that we should be messing with? Shouldn't we assume? Let's give God the benefit of the doubt as to when the Spirit begins. I I have my own opinion. The The Spirit begins at conception. But the moment... That egg and sperm meet. There's a person there. There is a spirit there that is eternal and living. And I think, in some ways, tragically on this side, wonderfully on the other side, there are going to be millions who are in heaven who never set foot on this planet because their spirits were there. Well, that's an assumption. Yes, it is. You're right. I'll give you that. It is an assumption. But so is the thought that a person is not a person until they're born. That's an assumption. And do we really want to rest on assumptions when making the decision about life or death in the womb? The Bible is clear that God has a hand in this. By the way, another question to ask. When did God start thinking precious thoughts about you? Verse 17 How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. And in the Hebrew, that reads just as easily, How precious are your thoughts of me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I'm awake, I'm still with you. The idea here is that God our Maker is not the hard-cold scientist in the lab playing with human life or human tissue as like it's Play-Doh. Put that together, get them going, okay. That's not it. It's that as God wove me in my mother's womb, as He molded me, as He made me, the precious thoughts about me were already flowing in the mind of God. When did he start thinking precious thoughts about me? Gang, he is the devoted daddy. He's the devoted daddy who has precious thoughts of his children, who's adoring them before they even have awareness. He is already in adoration. And it's amazing. David writes by God's Spirit that the number of his thoughts about me personally are like the grains of sand. Outnumber the grains of sand. Well, let's consider that. The grains of sand. How many grains of sand, if you just scoop up a handful on a beach, how many grains of sand would you be holding? And some who apparently have a lot of time to do this kind of counting, (laughs) say 100,000. 100,000 in your hand, okay. You know that's more than the number of stars a person could count with the naked eye? In the palm of your hand? How many grains of sand in the world? Researchers have actually tried to figure this one out. Again, way too much time on their hands. 
they have estimated that there are 7.5 quintillion grains of sand. Quintillion is 19 figures. 7, 7 quintillion 500 quadrillion followed by 17 zeros. Hmm? <laughs> kind of like our national debt. And right up there. Yeah, you just watch for the number quintillion to be thrown out. <laughs> wow. That's how much God thinks about you. Outnumbers the sand. His precious thoughts of you personally. You sitting right there in, in the little folding chair this morning. You. That's how much God has thought about, thinks about, continually is thinking about you. How personal is that? There is no one on the face of the planet I love more than my wife, and yet I don't think of her constantly, 24-7. I just did, just right now, but I wasn't a couple seconds ago. (laughs) Don't tell her. He never stops. How precious are your thoughts of me. Again, this is, this is astounding stuff. How is this possible? My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah 55 writes. It's possible because God is all-knowing and all-loving because He is omniscient, and my origin is in Him. Number three. And this is where it gets difficult. His omniscience, my origin, our opposition. Because God is my God. He is my God. Listen up. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. This last section here, it's one of those things, David does it all the time. used to frustrate me. Where he breathes out this beautiful, lofty, lovely, wonderful, encouraging, engaging song, and then at the end of it he goes into this whole slay the wicked thing. (laughs) It's like a love song until you get to the end. You know, it'd be like me saying, oh Cheryl, how much I love you. I'm always thinking of you. I want to kill those who are against you. I want to slay them, take them out. You know what I mean? Really? Verse 20. (laughs) For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. What's going on here? David is opposed to the rebellious. David is opposed to the atheist. David is opposed to anyone who would willfully set themselves against God. Why? Because David is head over heels in love with God. Because now we begin to see this is not just personal from God to David. This is personal from David to the Lord. David is taking his Lord personally. You have something to say negatively against my God? You're going to come against my God? You're going to stand in opposition against my God, whose precious thoughts of me outnumber the, the grains of the sand? This is my God we're talking about. And you're opposed to Him? Then I am opposed to you. That's what he's saying. I got an email from a compassionate brother. I won't share the name, but I want you to hear this. 
because I think it it applies and it's important for us as a fellowship to hear this. A few weeks back, uh, he wrote, or maybe she wrote, I don't know. Two weeks ago, something that I am concerned about came up in the sermon and I feel it's worth mentioning to you. You were talking about the governor of Alabama who had to apologize for telling a church that he hoped everyone would become his brother in Christ. And in parentheses, says, very sad. And you quoted a couple secular and atheist responses. Everyone found these responses quite funny, but our response as a church concerned me. How can we laugh at the ways people are deceived? My heart really cringed as the congregation laughed, and I was thinking about it later. It seems that we can't laugh without somehow thinking we're better than these people or that we wouldn't make the same mistakes in their shoes. And I picture us just saved from falling off a cliff and laughing at those who are about to fall off. Now, I know I'm being a bit sensitive, and if I'm being a Debbie Downer, <laughs> yeah, that's Saturday Night Live thing, I hope you can tell me, but I thought this was worth talking about Thanks for listening. And I appreciated getting that. I want to be clear. I don't think the laughter was coming from insensitivity as much as it was coming from irony. The irony of the statement that was made by the atheist that I quoted. Uh, Another word is incredulity. Incredulity. When you're incredulous with something, it's just you're like... Are you serious? (laughs) Really? And that, I think, was the the substance of the response. Why people laugh when I read, and here was the quote from the atheist, the governor places the Bible above the Constitution and his pastor above the president. And we all just kind of, (laughs) of course we would. Well, not the pastor part, but of course. (laughs) Of course we place the Bible above the Constitution. And so there there was a laughter that rumbled among us. And that's where my compassionate brother was was coming from. And and he's right in that we have to never look at the deceived and the unsaved in the lost world with contempt. We cannot go there as though we're better because we're saved. But that's not who David was talking about here. David is talking about those who have willfully set themselves against God. The atheist. To get to the point where you say, I am an atheist, what you're saying is, I reject God. I reject the existence of God. And even if there were a God, I'm opposed. David says, if you stand up in opposition to God, I stand up in opposition to you. Atheism, gang, is not just philosophical. It is personal. It is personal. And it is not acceptable for the atheist to go off on my God. It's not acceptable. That's not okay with me. Freedom of speech, great. You want to say anything you want against my God and against my Jesus, sure, in our country you have that right, but guess what? It will offend me. And as a Christian, there is a time when I am allowed to be offended. When it's okay for me to say, that is not right. That is not fair. That is not okay. Why are you getting all emotional, Rick? Because he's my God. Because I know how he feels about me, and that's how I feel about him. Oh, oh my thoughts get so scattered. I, I, you know, I can't think about him like he thinks about me. I don't have the vastness of love that he has for me, but what I have is for him. 
What I have, I give to Him. We have seen throughout this psalm, up to this point, you see how personally God takes each one of us. Here's the question. How personally do you take Him? Does it rile you? Does it upset you to hear people, even using God's name in vain, just kills me to hear it? Because it's, it's so... This is my God we're talking about. This is my Jesus. I mean, stand there at the foot of the cross, look into His eyes of love, and use His name in vain. This is my God. And I am opposed to those who are opposed to Him. David says, I hate them. Verse 22. You know what the Hebrew word for hate means? Hate! (laughs) You know, let's look that up and let's see what the word really is. That's what the word really is. No way around it. I hate them who, who hate the Lord. I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and... Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. How does this jive with the compassionate evangelical heart? Now here's the, here's the rub. Here's the problem. I can sit up here on a Sunday morning and go off about those who are against God and say, I'm poor God and I love the Lord and don't you dare be. If you're opposed to Him, I'm opposed to you and all that. But you've got to come down to the question, what about evangelism? So what do you do with the deceived, the lost, the unsaved in this world? How do you meld this? Y'all need to understand my life's desire and my reason for starting the Bridge Fellowship in the very first place was to see lost people saved. And that is at the core of my heart. And I'm still longing for that day where we're around the pond and 200 people are in the water getting baptized. I still long for the day where we just were up to five, six, seven services because people are coming out of the woodwork for Jesus, not for us, not for this church, but because they want the Lord. They're hungry for Him. And so that's my heart, that we would bring the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ into this very dark world. But I will not, in the name of evangelism, I will not sit by and tacitly accept the blasphemous arrogance of those who stand opposed to God. There is a place to draw the line here. I am opposed to those who willfully oppose God. Jehoshaphat was a good king. One of the better kings of the kingdom of Judah. At the time where there was the kingdom of Judah and there was the kingdom of Israel. But he made a bad choice. Jehoshaphat, sixth king of Judah, aligned himself with Ahab the seventh king of Israel. Ahab was about as bad as they come. His wife was Jezebel. Not, not a good, you know. And so Jehoshaphat aligns with Ahab to go into battle with him, not by the blessing of the Lord, but just, you know, there's something we can do. They go to battle together. Jehoshaphat was almost killed. And so the Lord sent Yehu the prophet to him. Yehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet Jehoshaphat. In 2 Chronicles 19, verse 2, listen to this. In fact, you may want to underline this in your Bibles. Yehu, from the Lord, said to Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? My friends, evangelism is not about loving those who hate the Lord. 
There is a difference between those who are lost and deceived and unaware and those who are opposed. There is a difference. doesn't mean that you stop praying for the opposed. But it does mean that you don't just let the opposed walk all over you. There is a right place to draw the line when you say, I want to see the lost saved, but I stand in opposition to those who are in opposition to God. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, to love all men with benevolence is our duty, but to love any wicked man with complacency would be a crime. To hate a man for his own sake or for any evil they've done to us, would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness, the enemy of all righteousness, is nothing more nor less than an obligation. The more we love God, listen, the more we love God, the more indignant we shall grow with those who refuse Him their affection. And I couldn't agree more. Do we love God enough? How much do we love Him? How passionate are we for Him? And I am not talking about going out on some grand campaign to to take down the atheists of the world and to to talk them down and to fight in the streets with our banners held high. We are against the atheists. That's not what I'm saying. There are a lot of people who would consider themselves atheists who never really have even thought about the matter. They just never really had the introduction. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the ones putting the signs on the buses. Talking about the ones who have made it their life purpose to say there is no God and to try and take down as many people with them as they can who stand opposed to the Lord. And I'm opposed to them. Jesus said in Luke 11.23, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And here at the close of this deeply personal psalm, David spills some brutally honest guts. But it's because he was a man who counted his relationship with God as first and foremost in his life, and though he lose every other relationship in the world, he's clinging to that one. He will hold on to the God whose hand is upon him. Can we be in a relationship with God that is so personal and yet remain neutral? Is that possible? You set yourself against my wife, and I am set against you. You try and go head to head with my family, and I'm not talking about loving correction among Christians. I'm talking about you target my kids, I'm coming after you. Why is it okay to let people target our God and not say a word about it? Oh, we just have to be loving. We just have to, you know, just let it go, let it go, Pastor. Please, you're making me uncomfortable. (laughs) Do you ever get your back up for God? And let me couple that with this statement. Do you realize how far He went to get His back up for you? His back was against the cross. Talk about getting your back up. And if Jesus would go that far to show how much He personally loved me, am I going... To stand up for Him and say it is not okay for you to badmouth my God because He loves with an everlasting love. Now listen. All that said, the biggest challenge is discerning when to do that. When to be the loving, compassionate, evangelical person. You know, the person who's looking to see the lost saved. 
And when you draw that line and say, no, I, I will not tolerate that kind of talk. I will not accept that kind of behavior or that attitude. Where do you draw that line? If you have feelings of opposition toward those opposed to the Lord, follow David's lead. Just follow David's lead here. Because after declaring honest hatred for the enemies of God, he immediately says the following, verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious or disquieting thoughts. Hey, some of this is is disquieting. Alright? It is. It's a little disquieting to think about being in opposition. Search me, God. Know me. Try and know my heart. Try and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. David now invites another invasive search of his heart. Psalm begins and ends the same way. You have searched me. You have known me. You know everything there is to know about me. And now at the end David's saying, search me again. Search me again, Lord. It's not a one-time deal when I gave my heart to you years ago. It's not a one-time deal when I said, Lord Jesus, I believe you are my Savior. Be my Lord. It's not when I gave my life to the Lord. That was the first search. But David invites ongoing search. Search me now, Lord. Search me right now and know me and try me. What began as a proclamation of fact, I have been searched, is now a petition of faith. Keep searching me. And see if there's anything in me that's dark, anything in me that's hurtful, anything in me that's wrong. Show me that, Lord. And you lead me in the way that is right, the way that is everlasting. That's how you discern the difference between when it's right to be opposed and when it's right to just be loving. Search me, Lord. You lead me. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. For all that, this is not business as usual. For the Lord, it is absolutely, profoundly personal. From our beginning to our end, whether we're talking about His omniscience or our origin or our opposition, It is all about Him. Do you take Him that personally? Father, this is one of those psalms that has moved me along a bit uncomfortably, um, but passionately. Oh God, to recognize how you feel. And the thoughts that you think, even though we can't fully recognize them, but Lord, to even try to conceive of how vast are your precious thoughts of us is overwhelming. And so, Father, we're just going to worship You. We're going to take some time and worship You. And let some of this sink in. And Father, I just want to pray that anything that uh, should not sink in would superficially glance off the surface and be lost. But everything that Your Spirit needs us to know and remember and retain from this psalm and from this time this morning, would you seed it deep in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.